0: reminded us of the uncertainties of Melbourne's weather, weeks of very warm weather, and suddenly deluge of rain all day, all night, for several days, everything cools down, becomes very wet. these things are completely beyond our control it's the nature of the elements and Utu Niyama the law of laws governing temperature winds, rain and so on also having Lumpur visiting, someone I've known s- since I was a, just one or two reigns as a monk, used to vi- know him when helping to nurse Lumpur Cha. he would sometimes be there. fourth reigns, when I began staying, having extended stays at Wat Mab Chan, with Lumpoy and when my sixth reigns came around, I went there on a more permanent basis. As you heard him reflect in the early days at Wat Mab Chan, life was not so easy comfortable for the monks. On the average day, nobody would visit the monastery. It's a very quiet place, jungle. there's no electricity, no proper road to the monastery, just a muddy track which would get washed out regularly. certainly no normal cars just occasionally a four wheel drive Ute or something or a tractor mm-hmm. the monks had to depend on Bindabhata and go out to the orchards mm-hmm. and to walk long distances between the farms to get food so regularly would walk 8 or 10 kilometers if a vehicle passed you on the track you got covered in dust which would stick to you because you were sweating from the heat and there was regularly weather like this like in the rainy season it could rain all night very heavily and in the morning it's still raining so you go out and taking umbrella was sometimes jokingly to a sila because you put the umbrella up but you still got completely soaked and you come back in your robes, every last robe was completely soaked and on those days most people didn't come out to put food in your bowl you might return to the monastery with next to nothing there'd only be 8 or 10 monks there we didn't have a lot. Usually there was one or two ladies staying in the monastery who would cook extra food, which helped us out. We regularly had a practice. We would meditate before the meal, so after s- sorting out the Vigda of food, toilet or whatever, then you sit usually for up to an hour, but it depended on Lumpur Anand, occasionally an hour and a half. I used to have a practice, I was trying to teach myself to sit in full lotus, so I found it quite helpful to meditate in full lotus, even though my body is not very supple, so full lotus from the time I got on to the arsenal until the meal time giving the blessing but it was a bit of a lottery because that could be 45 minutes or an hour and 45 minutes, you never knew so sometimes it would push my endurance limits nobody else knew what I was doing so it wasn't like any intentional um, anyone trying to me a hard time so in addition to being tired from maybe sleeping little walking Bindabhata on empty stomach being hot dusty sweaty and to put up with a bit of pain although you might say that was self-inflicted about and he just passed out. His head hit the ground, which was a tiled floor with a crack. and to be carried to the... We had a sick bay, a sick room for sick monks to be carried off. He was so weak. So it was quite a memorable time. Everyone was there because of their commitment to the practice. you you wouldn't normally choose to go and live in a malarial infested forest with minimal facilities but out of faith, devotion to the practice faith in Lumpur faith in the practice everyone was willing to do that everyone was there voluntarily and perhaps the simplicity was helpful in those days few distractions to your practice it's very easy to set up a routine where you could really monitor what you were doing every day how many hours of sitting and walking you did what was going on in your mind could be quite you could be quite clear because there wasn't so much distraction that was quite helpful as i've said a few times we Used to get up very early in Thailand. Um, regularly, monks would get up at 2 a.m. And the very last monk to arrive at the morning meeting would arrive at 3 a.m. So if a monk arrived after that, he felt like he was being late. He was late and would sit until dawn, until uh, just before dawn. regularly many of the monks were sleeping just between 10pm when they got back to their kuti and then up again at 2 and usually you'd have a chance for a nap in the day but not always if there was some special chores or some reason after in the afternoon maybe you couldn't have a, a midday rest so you became very familiar with the pattern of your life how many hours you sit and walk, and you use that as a way to gauge your effort. It doesn't matter whether your mind is peaceful or not. It's more just putting that effort in, the sincerity of that motivation and uh, bringing up the effort. That was the important thing. Then on the Bozitta nights and the half-moon nights, to practice nesajika again monitoring yourself how many hours you sit how many hours you walk how sleepy you were some monks going as far as refusing to eat the next day if they gave in to sleepiness if they found themselves nodding on the asana then that was it just not eat the next day of practice came through people's own wishes to progress in their practice, came from faith, devotion, mm. it wasn't inflicted or forced onto anybody. No. It was just that interest to learn mm. as a meditator, as a practitioner, using the forest, using the Vinaya training as a way to... It's important to remember we're here to learn about ourselves. The only way we can really improve in our practice is by observing, learning, challenging ourselves. And it's up to each one of us to bring up that effort, that energy in the practice. When we meditate, whether it's sitting or walking, the effort is always to bring the mind one-pointedness, to get beyond the hindrances. That's your goal. You might say that's the goal of the holy life, Mm. to keep working through the hindrances using both mindfulness, wisdom, patience, effort, all the different spiritual faculties and baramis to get beyond whatever the particular hindrance is that's bothering you. boredom or laziness, anger, frustration, lust or desire for different material things, worry, concerns about our health, doubt about the practice or the place or the teacher, all the different hindrances that come up, your aim is to get through them. Or whatever it is that's bothering you whatever your mind is stuck on and you sit and learn to get through whatever you're stuck on so it's a practice of bringing up many qualities renunciation in the sense of just being willing to let go of things rather than always find excuses to carry on clinging to a certain moods justifying them for them, rather, rather than always planning. You know, we're always planning what I'm going to do next, where I'm going to go, without being very mindful of the present moment. If we're angry, you know, we're always justifying our anger and getting caught up into the thought patterns based on our ill will against another person or frustrations with the particular issue that we to just renounce all of it let it go that's our practice and you're doing that over and over again through the day and night you might say in a way uh, every time you meditate sitting or walking it's almost like it's uh, going back to square one, it's almost like reordaining your heart every time you meditate think about it, why do we ordain as monks? Well, we're all interested to progress in our spiritual practice to overcome suffering, stress to develop the qualities that will ultimately liberate this mind this heart from suffering that's why we ordain every time you meditate every time you go on to the chongkron path you sit down, cross your legs It's like reinforcing that intention. It's like another moment where you're reordaining your heart, as it were. Setting up the aspiration to go beyond suffering and then working with whatever's coming up in your mind. So whether that's your long-term goal as a monk or just the short-term goal of a particular period of putting effort into the meditation, is directed to clearing the mind of the hindrance that's before it at that very time, at that very moment. So you learn to keep coming back to the meditation object, to the present moment, and assessing what's going on, observing what is going on. Why is this mind not being say like in those old days what if you're in a situation where it's particularly challenging in you know the weather the simplicity the possibility of malaria or regularly you'd meet king cobras or banded crates more times than I can remember I've met very deadly snakes or walking meditation or even waking up in my cootie once with a banded crate coming in through the window. Very strange. I was lying down is about midnight, been asleep for about an hour or so and it was I woke up with this feeling like someone was pointing their sharp knuckly finger into my that p- space between your hip and your ribs, which is really soft and it was just like a finger pointing in woke up thinking somebody must be in the room, but of course there was no one there, so I looked around, I thought mm, maybe it was a dream or something, and went back to to sleep, and just as I was falling asleep again, so only a few minutes later, exactly the same feeling, but now because I was half awake, I could be sure that this was not a, I wasn't imagining it then I lit a candle, shone a torch. There's still no one in the room who had made that uh, feeling as though someone was poking me. But then, because I shone the torch, I caught the banded crate in the window coming in. and to use a broom and a kind of discourage it from coming into my small kuti where it could easily <laughs> have caused some trouble. I don't know what that was. Maybe you could say it was just a coincidental dream, physical reaction of the body, guardian deva. But anyway, it was useful because it stopped a banded crate coming in through the window. That's the kind of atmosphere it was. You met snakes regularly, big snakes, huge king cobras that could easily have... Um, somebody, you could come down from uh, in the morning and find the bear tracks on the path or on a tree next to your cootie. so there was a lot of uncertainty in those days, simplicity, but you use that as a background for training your mind, you don't have to worry too much about other things, and certainly nob- not many lay people came to bother us because nobody wanted to go there they're frightened of malaria frightened of animals and snakes so that meant there was a lot of time for practice you could see the value I appreciate that situation because you set up this sort of routine for yourself where you're monitoring your your mind as you practice sitting walking meditation every day and you notice today a lot of anger day a lot of lust, or today worries, or today nothing, maybe today it's a very peaceful day, you start noticing the changes in your mind, and you're also seeing what prompts different hindrances to arise, and sometimes they just come out of nowhere, so you can't blame anyone else, or any external situation, maybe just some internal. times it may be a particular situation. I remember one time Ajahnana and the Sangha were invited to Phuket. I thought I wouldn't go because I didn't want to go to Phuket because I associated that with it being a holiday resort, the beaches. And they were going to a uh, place, a hotel, be near the beaches, so I said, I'll just stay in the monastery. So me being the senior resident monk had to take the responsibilities of looking after the monastery just for a f- few days and there were two visiting monks one just senior to me one just junior to me so they sit either side and they weren't familiar with the monastery they didn't know the r- regular rules of training so they'd already been causing some concern around, uh, in the resident's anger because they weren't following every rule of training everything that the other monks would do. So it was sort of almost predictable a few things would come up when Lumbu Anand was not there. So they started off being very good friends. So I was sitting there at the mealtime where we'd meditate and they were talking either side of me to each other all through the meditation. I just had to learn to ignore that and get on with my own practice. Then after a day or two of talking friendly, then they got upset with each other. So they started arguing, <laughs> which to mm. the few of us who were still left, the regular monks, was a, seemed a bit ironic or amusing from being good friends, suddenly became worst enemies, but we also had to deal with that because they were talking with each other so much, first in a friendly way, and then in an unfriendly way. I was walking on my meditation path one afternoon mm. and I just had all the conversations going in my ear and it's because they sat one side, one on each side of me. It's as if these two voices popping into either ear. Mm. I found it very difficult to stay with It's difficult to stay with the breath. I thought, what can I do? So I put all my attention on my ears. And even though it's just memory of sound, verbalization of people's conversations I just put my attention on the ears noticing the current sense contact which was fairly mild just a few birds and the wind <coughs> but as the memories came up I was just contemplating them just memory arising and ceasing memory of sound verbal conversations some the mood of friendliness, some with the mood of anger, depending on these two and their situation. I was just contemplating impermanence of sense contact, first through sound and then through memory, popping into the mind. I was just contemplating how impermanent it was. So my mind, for some reason, I've tried very hard. I guess because it stirred me up, and made my mind agitated. I tried even harder to. Let go of that agitation. So I went into a very deep state of samadhi and just walking meditation. And when you go into a deep state of samadhi, you just have to stop. You physically stop. Your mind has gone in. You can't feel the body anymore. Mm -hmm. You don't hear sound. You don't feel the body. Which in those days was a bit risky because it meant dozens of mosquitoes just land on you and start biting because you're no longer aware of them. And every mosquito potentially can give you malaria. It's just something you have to accept. So I went into a deep state of samadhi. The complete body disappeared. Very peaceful. As if like, just in a very bright, happy place inside. Everything else, all the physical sensations, sense contact disappeared memories were clearly just memories and they're not permanent and clearly seen as just not self just a memory arising and ceasing as if all the concern about these two monks and what they're getting up to just totally disappeared from the mind and looked at it in a totally different way like when we're not particularly mindful and we're not seeing the three characteristics then the mind will always take it as self is me, I'm suffering with this monk or that monk or this issue, that issue. And dukkha arises because there's no right view at that moment you're not seeing it as an each dukkha anatha, you're just seeing it as self, myself, poor me, suffering with this problem. And you're attached to the words people say, their actions, the sannya that arises, it's right. judgments f- fuel a lot of sankharas you know, thought formations this is good, this is bad right, wrong, mm-hmm. on and on it goes the kind of mental conversation but not guided by mindfulness and wisdom, just guided by moods of pleasure or displeasure fed by sannya. but when the mind through effort put into establishing mindfulness on one object or another, in this case just on the ears and sense contact at the ears which uh, was certainly an unusual one for me but it worked and the mind went totally inside so it becomes one pointed and that moment is bright the hindrances have gone it's experiencing internal happiness, piti, sukha one pointedness so then it gives you a completely different perspective on your own suffering as you emerge from that state even though you know, I emerged from that state I became aware that I've got 50 mosquitoes on my arms and legs in the forest that didn't matter at all because that's just you know a minor thing a few mosquito bites compared to a state of samadhi you come out of that and you start to experience vitaka vichara again you start to be able to think Thoughts arise, memories arise, sense contact arises again. But of course, mindfulness is more trained now. So you start to see, view your own candors, your own sense contact, your thoughts, your feelings, the sensations in a different light. You normally, when there's not such clarity, it's me, myself, my body, in the case of the mosquitoes you're worried about my body getting bitten getting malaria getting pain and itchy getting dengue fever another thing they can bring scrub typhus, dengue fever was quite prevalent in those days or just the irritations of heat, sweat and so on instead of seeing that all as me mine, my problem my suffering of the body just an experience it's just the way it is your bodies get hot bodies get bitten by mosquitoes the sense of me mind, myself, that view changes, so it's just noticing it's just the way it is when you're in the tropics, in the jungle it's like this or the memory of these two monks who've been causing some grief, some problems it's just a memory Obviously, you know your. It's your memory, but that sense of ownership disappears mm-hmm. when you reflect with mindfulness and reflect on the anicca dukkha of the experience. It's just a memory. It's not really mine, yours, theirs, anybody's. It's just a memory. Those people, the perception of them, is just a memory. So all the kind of underlying rise to the clinging, that gives rise to the feeling of anger, judgment, displeasure, whatever, disappears. The whole experience is viewed differently, it's viewed as just memories arising, ceasing, thought formations. The thought formations change. Once they're informed by mindfulness and wisdom, then there's not the same grasping, <coughs> that sort of craving that very emotional, upset, complaining, thought formations become very peaceful, wholesome, You're just reflecting, oh that's just the way it is, rather than being angry with another monk and uh, you just notice them, maybe they're practicing not the best, maybe they're lost in their own delusions, so it gives rise to a sense of sympathy or understanding and goodwill, a wish for them to improve, to change. Rather than just anger and negativity, so thought formations change, become more wholesome, and with that wholesomeness, even leads on to a sense of what can I can do to help them? Can I? Is there anything I can do to assist them? So far from being angry or seeking revenge, you actually ch- the, the thought formations change to. Um, is there anything that can be done? Or maybe one reflects: there's nothing that can be done. Peka arises. It's just mm, it's just the way it is. They have their karma, their conditioning. just have to accept that and they'll just have to take responsibility for their own actions and deal with it. But the thought formations are wholesome and there's no grasping there. No. The, the power of craving, driving the, the mental formations, the thoughts, the moods has gone. how we practice and this is just one example I'm giving you as we practice you know, we're learning how to one point the mind so that we can reflect on experience rather than getting caught up in, into it all the time taking it as self being obsessed with our self our moods our emotions <coughs> blaming other people for various things that contact with us but rather changing everything seeing it as as mindfulness comes up strongly, continuously then seeing things more with a wholesome state of mind and seeing it with wisdom but in order to do that well we have to develop some one-pointedness that mindfulness, that ability to drop the normal habits of the mind that just constantly caught up with distraction, pleasure seeking, rejecting and getting uh, angry or frustrated with unpleasant sensations and situations. That's you know the normal mental activity, the mental conversations we're having which motivate us and motivate our speech and actions as well. Dropping all that. let things go see it as not that important So it's also a change of attitude and a change of values even as you practice more you start to value the inner work of bringing up mindfulness directed to the objects of meditation and then reflecting wisely that becomes valuable important and the external things of our life which we still have less important and you can see over time that you know if the, you train the mind well inside on the outside things tend to go in the right direction as well because they reflect what's going on on the inside. but in the beginning you know, we have we come into the monastery into the robes or into our meditation we've got lots of old habits and clinging we bring with us. And our values are not yet established in the way of Dhamma. <coughs> so you know, you have a thought about say things that are important to you, maybe family, that can occupy your mind for a whole hour of meditation. Just think about family, what i got to do, plan to visit them, do this with them, do that with them. No mindfulness at all. Or if you're frustrated, angry with another monk, you can spend a whole hour just thinking about don't like them, don't want them, them do that with them why are they here blah 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 or if it's lust then you can spend a whole hour just fantasizing about the object of your lust and how to get it and what you would do with it it's a value change where you quickly start to see these are the hindrances these are the things to be abandoned and the development of the path factors are the important things mindfulness right effort to abandon unwholesome states of mind arise develop wholesome states of mind and continue to develop them further bring them up the development of inner peace, happiness through samadhi becomes important sensual happiness worldly happiness becomes less important it's a value shift that that will start to change the way you relate to day the people around you the activities you're involved with what you do with your body speech and mind will reflect what attitudes and values you hold important in your mind so if you see the value of training in meditation then you know, that will affect your lifestyle you'll be careful how much you socialize you'll be careful how you spend your time you start to be more aware of you do actually meditate you know. if if you see meditation is valuable and you let a whole day go by without doing any formal meditation mm-hmm. then you don't feel comfortable inside but if you don't see meditation as very valuable well you can just go for days and days without any effort at all in formal meditation and these are the kind of values that change through the practice and they're independent of In the old days, say, somewhere like what Mark John is very challenging, but you could maintain those values very easily. To meditate, put effort into meditation, even though often you were tired, hot, hungry. You see the dangers to it. You know, you, the more comfortable we are, often the weaker that the value system of seeing effort in meditation is important. That weakens. Mm. It's easier just to go the way of. Oh, there's enough food. I have enough sleep. Got enough distractions. I can email someone, phone someone, talk to someone, read something, do this, do that. Mm. You know, after a while, that becomes the value in the mind. that's what I do. That's what I find comfortable, pleasurable, interesting meditation starts to recede as something just too hard, too difficult. And you can hear people say that. They say, oh, I don't have the Bharami me to meditate. I don't have the Bharami to progress in meditation. Yeah, straight away we can have an excuse ready. Or we have, there's the ones who are planning it. I'm going to meditate. When I get through this next project, then I'm going to do more meditation. When I get to that place, when I do this, when I do that, then I'll meditate but it's all just in the future it's just plans and ideas so I guess that was one memory of living at what down is the sincerity of everyone and it wasn't like everyone was born as a great meditator with great Barami everyone was very normal just like we are here we're just ordinary human beings from different backgrounds but there was a, you might say, a love or a commitment to the practice, which was shared, and that has a good effect. Everybody kind of encourages everybody else. So you didn't, ha- the, th- the teacher at nun didn't actually have to say a lot in those days. If he did say something, people took notice of it. But he didn't have to say a lot, because it was just obvious. That if you didn't turn up to a meeting, you felt bad. Felt guilty. Nobody had to tell you off. If you didn't do a chore that you were assigned, you felt guilty. You didn't have to wait for someone to tell you off. You just knew, oh, I should have done that. So it was a very high standard of integrity, impeccability. So even the monastery even though the monastery was c- not very well supported, the buildings are just a few small buildings. Some of them still had grass roofs. They're all very clean well maintained I remember Lumpur Phak came to visit one day mm. great Ajahn who lived further along the coast and he came in we were just sweeping the leaves and then he came up to the sala and he had a few laymen with him and he just took them to the shrine and he wiped his hand along the shrine where the Buddha, main Buddha was and uh, told his they said, mm, look, no dust at all. And these monks are practicing properly. They do their chores. They keep the place clean, even though it's a very simple building. There was only a few buildings in those days. Said it's clean, well-maintained, well-looked after. So in, the end, in the end, the practice is all about you yeah. know the right attitude, bringing up faith, Finding it down to one-pointedness. There's one-pointedness on your chores, one-pointedness on your chanting, one-pointedness on your meditation, eating your meal with one-pointedness. You know, this is what we're developing. Lumpur Chah used to say, you don't have to be the best at everything, but just give your best to the practice. And there'll always be someone else who dance better, or can sit longer, or walk longer, or make better bowl stands than you, or sew better, or knows more about the suitors than you. There'll always be someone like that. The important thing, though, is your the quality of your effort and the attitude you have to the practice, and you know, bringing that up regularly putting it into practice as you sit meditation will really want to free your mind from whatever hindrance, whatever problem is coming up. If you're really suffering over something, well don't stop meditating until you've cleared it up in your mind, until you've gone through it or transcended it through walking or sitting. And this is one of the few lifestyles in the world where you can do that. Nobody will criticize you if you spend all night meditating because you're worried about something or angry about something or your mind is full of lust nobody will criticise you if you just keep going and meditating until you've cleared it out of your mind established mindfulness attained a state where you're just peaceful within yourself and you no longer have that problem there we can do that we can be uncompromising we can be bold, courageous walk for many hours we can put all the other things aside the less necessary things just to train this mind and really that's what the purpose of the monastic life is for of course we do other (coughs) activities we all have skills, we have things we can offer to the community, give back to the sangha, give back to the laity it's not that we shouldn't do anything but We are here to free our minds from suffering. So if you notice some suffering, well, don't don't just let it sit there in your mind. Don't continue with it. Make that the priority. End it through the practice. So just by coincidence... uh also we were celebrating the birthday of Watma Jung 33 years of that monastery. So I certainly have very many memories of that living there for many years. and uh, hopefully this monastery can also be a place where you can put effort into your practice you have every kuti has a walking path every, Today we have many hours available to sit, to walk. Everything is here. The support is here. The conditions are all not always ideal, but that's good. If there's a bit of cold or rain or it's too hot, things change. Well, that can be good for a practice. The important thing is to use the opportunity. You don't let your life drift by with the same old or hindrances ruling over your mind and don't be some kind of victim of your own greed, anger and delusion and develop something stronger better than that through the practice and fight back as it were with, with the Dhamma